another super awesome, amazing person within the tech and funding ecosystem here. We have Hall Martin, who is the founder of uh, 10 Capital Network. And I just found out that stands for Texas Entrepreneurial Network. Um, he does a lot of stuff. Today, we're going to be talking about how he manages an angel group and um, probably the biggest angel group in uh, the South, uh, especially Texas. Um, uh, he is part of the Baylor Angel, angel Network and uh, is just all about startups. So, Hall, pleasure to have you here. Uh, how is it in Texas right now? That's well, great, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And uh, Texas, it's nice, so cool weather here, 55, I believe it is today. So it's starting to cool off a little bit from our hot summers that we usually have here. No way. Is it, um, I've never even been to Texas, so I don't want to, <laughs> I don't even want to confuse myself. Um, but you're in Austin, right? Is, is that where you are? That's right. We're here in Austin, Texas. Uh, man, I gotta go. I've all, I'm going to go check it out soon. So you are the CEO and founder of the 10 Capital Group. Can you just give us a high-level overview of what, what that is and, and you know, how, you, how you, your work there supports entrepreneurs? Sure. So 10 Capital, what we do is we're what we call funding as a service. We're helping startups and investors connect for funding. We work both sides. We help startups get ready to go out to meet investors, prepare documents, prepare the pitch, et cetera learn how to follow up. Uh, and we also help prepare the investors for those who want to invest in startups. Many, many times it's their first time to fund a startup and they're trying to figure out the terms and what to look for. And we have programs for them as well. And my background is I started three angel networks in Texas back in the 2000s. I started the CTAN and the Baylor Angel Network and the Wilco Angel Network and had a lot of fun with it. And so in 2009, I retired from my day job, worked for National Instruments for 24 years and decided I wanted a second career and started uh, working with startups. And we called it the Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we worked primarily in Texas and we started with Texas Angels. But then over the years, I, I recruited uh, VCs from the West Coast, East Coast. Back yeah. then, <laughs> you flew to San Francisco or New York to find VCs. Today, they're everywhere. But back then, that's where they were clustered. And so I went out and recruited them. And then in 2016, they had a whole bunch of family offices come into the network. They wanted to go invest direct and not pay the, the fund management fees anymore. And some, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And then 2017, I was getting calls from outside of Texas saying, I want access to your investor network, but I'm not in Texas. How do we do this? Yeah. So we re renamed the company 10 Capital, and that's what 10 stands for, and started working our program around the U.S. instead of just around Texas, and then have just been growing it ever since with both the investor side and the company side. Do you guys have, uh, I guess, some, some companies that are notable today or that I would recognize anyone would be kind of a you know, they would say, oh, yeah, no way. I can't believe they came from Texas. Or what are some Texas companies that we can, you know, rattle off the top of the head? Well, if you ever look at uh, the, you know, Experian TV commercial about searching the dark web for your information and cybersecurity play, that was originally CS Identity. And that was one of the deals we funded back when I was at C10. It was uh, turned out to be a 40x return for the investors back then. So it worked out great. The name doesn't carry forward because it was bought out and now it's just a subunit inside Experian itself. But there's many examples like that where companies were bought out and going forward. We are getting more unicorns here in Austin. Everlywell is the most recent one that came up. They're at-home testing kits and, and COVID. You can expect that that was a, a winning game plan. So they did very <laughs> well. They were from Dallas, moved to Austin, and part of our conferences we did. And so they're, they're a, a well-recognized awesome. name now for sure. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I was gonna order that actually, but then I was like, I don't want to draw my blood. But <laughs> having in support of your guys's investment, I might have to uh, re reexamine my uh, my 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 stance on that. That's so awesome, you know. Um, uh, I would never have thunk it. I think Texas is really well known for oil and kind of the you know economy, the oil economy, but. Uh, knowing you, you know, your work, it's, it's definitely an entrepreneurial, uh, environment and, and ecosystem. Um, can you just maybe explain what the, um, the environment is in the 10 capital network and how, uh, how it is to be an angel in there and how it is to be entrepreneur related to the, the, you know, the work that you guys have. Sure. So we focus on venture deals, you know, seed, series A, series B, venture funded startups. And about half our network is focused on tech, tech enablement, uh, fintech and health tech being a big sub vertical, but anything tech enabled is over half of it. And then about 25% are focused on uh, healthcare, uh, digital health uh, devices, diagnostics, therapeutics, and so forth. And then another 25% is focused on consumer product goods, uh, food and beverage, health and wellness and the like. And we're seeing more climate change deals come through, carbon sequestration and others of the like. And so we're working with those deals as well. But the idea is we're, we're looking for venture level deals. And these are the verticals that people are interested in. And we, I came from the angel world, so I knew angels. And sometimes they're by themselves, sometimes they're in groups. We have over 200 angel groups in our network that we work with on a regular basis. And then we work with venture capital. And venture capital is, you know, increasingly there's growing the micro VC component, you know, the people yeah, with yeah, yeah. sub $100 million funds are coming in and there's over 4,000 of them. And uh, just see a whole bunch of those guys coming in looking for deal flow and uh, also trying to find uh, funding for their funds through, for, through limited partners. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think something that I'd love to discuss with you is uh, when you started the 10 Capital Network, um, did you kind of plan it to be just an angel? Is it like a, more of an angel syndicate or is it more, um, you know, people who have uh, who are committed to x amount of uh money a year similar to like a vc fund but it just runs you know as a network so we we have all of the above we have funds we have syndicates we have angel groups we have individuals all of those are in our network that make up the fourteen thousand. and what i found is that entrepreneurs when they go out to raise funding have to go from group to group network to network to find investment. Uh, you don't find all your money in one place anymore. You have to go through several groups. And that's our, our value proposition is we'll help you find the right groups because I can take a group in uh, or a startup and I can reposition it in many ways. I had an ed tech company come to me once and I took it and said, okay, here are education ed tech investors. And then I, I realized, well, they have recurring revenue and I have investors that love SaaS recurring revenue deals. Doesn't matter what you're selling. You'd be selling bags of rocks for all they care. But if you have the right CAC LTV <laughs> ratio, we repositioned sure. it as that and positioned it to them. And then- Is that still three, it, three to one? Three to one CAC? Is that, is that, that That's the your best? floor. That's right. That's it's your floor. floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think one to four, one to five is what some people start to look at for sustainability. If you want to sustain your business, you need to be up a little bit higher. But for starting point, it shows you have a good basic business there. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. And then I have, I noticed in that deal that they also had an impact metric. They were helping students graduate. And so I have investors interested in impact investing. So again, I repositioned it again for the impact investors. 
at heart, the deck is the same, but what you emphasize on the subject line in front of the mailer is what is really helps uh, resonate with the investor and engage with each one. And so we're always coaching startups on how you can position your deal for the investor you're talking to. I think everybody has the, the, the one size fits all deck and that's fine. Everything's in there. But how you position it, how you promote it up front is, is important for how you raise funding. And you need to know something about your investor. What are they interested in? What, what are they looking for? And make sure you connect with them before you dive deep into the pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, you've had you know, more than a decade of uh, experience with your, your hands in the, in the dirt here, so to speak. So <laughs> kudos to you, man. Just one more thing into the... the the, the the environment in texas um I, I mean i'm from silicon valley so everything happens to be a tech company but i know texas has a lot of diversity not only innovation and tech but uh outside of there you know big industries um can you maybe recall a change in thinking of more entre- just entrepreneurship growing maybe over the last eight years when this stuff really started to balloon. Um, I know Austin has become a place that people flock to, especially, you know, last year and this year. What, what do you think it is about Austin that has, has people come in to, to be entrepreneurs and want to have a business in that city? Sure. Well, we have a very large university here. And I once wrote an article, you know, the 12 tribes of the Austin entrepreneur ecosystem. And I went out and looked at all the major spots where the entrepreneurs were clustered. There was the consumer product goods, there was the tech, there was the blockchain, there was the university and so forth. And it reminded me that the university is one of the driving forces behind entrepreneur ecosystems because they're graduating a lot of students that when they come out of school, they have a vision of starting their own company. And so that's, that's a big factor that drives it as well. And the, um, you know, the culture is that of being a, a creative class. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was a very strong place for people that wanted to uh, write songs and make music and make movies. And uh, there was tax credits back then that made movies a a good thing to do in Texas. Tax credits kind of went away, not completely, but not competitive to the rest of the country. So the movies kind of went to other places. But just saw that the transition from one creative class to the next, from movies and music to apps and technology, Austin, you know, moved over into being a tech space. And it had a long history at enterprise software. So when blockchain came along, it picked up blockchain very well. Blockchain is a very strong player here in Texas. We have low-cost energy. Wow. Uh, we have a lot of uh, players that want to move into the crypto space. And so you'll see a lot of activity here as well on that front. And then Houston is very strong in the biotech. They have a large medical community and put a lot into life science and biotech investments. And then Dallas is very strong with consumer product goods and with uh, cybersecurity, a lot of cybersecurity in the Dallas space. So there's different pockets of of um, competence that people go to always people always ask what what should they do and i always say well what, uh-huh. what did the last five successful entrepreneurs in your 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 local area do i i got this question from nebraska once and they i asked them so what what were the last five successful companies on and they said 
back office software for insurance companies. Ah, well, that's what you're going to build your entrepreneur ecosystem on is life, you know, insurance uh, software systems because <laughs> you've got a track record of success, you've got uh, some talent, you've got uh, some branding, and so that's what you want to do is work on what you're successful at already at some level. For sure. I mean, that sounds really amazing and and you know insightful. Uh, can can I, I mean, I'd love to you know, understand your time as an investor yourself and manager of, you know, fund people who fund. Um, something I'd love to ask you is just uh, say somebody's a new angel investor. How do you kind of, what, what are some things of advice that you say to them to, to, you know, how to allocate their capital into these uh, startups? And is there, you know, do you give them complete freedom or is it, you know, more overview and, and more, you know, caution that you guys have for that? How does that kind of pan out? Sure. So, you know, the rule of thumb is you want to put in maybe three to 5% of your discretionary uh, investment into startups uh, because it is a very risky space. And so, and for those who are going to actually make it their day job, they're going to start a fund and so forth. Well, then you go up to 10%, but usually not much more than that. You never put your lifestyle at risk because the money can go away and have seen that many times. Uh, it just goes away. So <laughs> you have to be careful with it. But the idea is you allocate some money up front so you know what the budget is and so forth. You're trying to get uh, at least 10 investments in for your money in order to get diversification. And people used to walk in with, uh, you know, they put $500,000 aside and they walk in with 10, 50K checks and they were just going to invest those 10, yeah. 50K checks. And today I see people walking in with, $100,000 set aside and they're going to walk, make uh, uh, 10 to 15, 5 and 10K checks into it. And with online portals and with syndication networks and so forth, you can get into deals for as little as five or $10,000 and thus get a diversified portfolio. And you'll see a lot of people doing that as well. You know, for sure. You know, Paul, uh, what I really want to ask now is like, how did you build 10 Capital Network? I mean, this was this is such a huge network, man. How did how did you, you know, locate high net worth individuals to to be in the thing in the in the network? I mean, was that somebody? Is that like an approach that you would have where you just hang out at a country club and hope you <laughs> meet somebody, or is it like door to door salesman? Is it like all the internet does all the work and you're on the yellow pages and calling people? How how did how do you build a network like this? Well, it's, it's a highly connected network. Everybody knows other people. And so we, we would go from one group to the next. And I started in 2001 with my first investor. We had an angel network here in Austin called the uh, Capital Network, and they ran from 95 to 2003. And then when the dot-com world went away, they went away with it. And so I made one investment, but met a lot of contacts and kept in touch with them. We didn't have an angel network for a few years. And then in 2006, the city did a restart and they called it the Central Texas Angel Network. And I was the first member to sign up. And when you're the first member to sign up, you're automatically on the board in charge of membership. So I met a lot, <laughs> a lot of people for a lot of investors in that process. And then I became the director for the first two years. And you met even more people recruiting investors into the network. And so when you're working with angel groups and that type of thing, you get to meet a lot of investors going through those groups. So that's one mechanism. And then you, you're looking for follow-on funding for your investments. And so you start reaching out to venture capital and you start to meet venture 
VCs in that direction as well. And then through net- other network connections, you can meet family offices. So it was just a, a networking process. And I, I like to be you know connected and help other people. I do at least two, three introductions every day on LinkedIn. You know, this person meet that person. They want to sell a product or they want to make an investment or they want to get advice, what have you. So always just been doing the uh, the networking thing for over 20 years. And that's one way you do it. The other other method was we, we have our own uh, podcast program called Investor Connect, in which we've done over 500 interviews with investors. And we bring them in and have them talk about what they invest in. Because when I talk to angel group leaders, the one common refrain I heard was, I wish I had institutionalized the knowledge of the group. Because in the angel world, what happens is you get a whole bunch of new investors. They don't know much. They come in. The first year, they're making all kinds of mistakes and learning the basics. And second year, they start to figure it out. And third year, they start to get their feet. And by the fifth year, they, they have usually invested what they're going to invest. And so they step out or they, they get busy with other passions. And so, but here comes a whole new group and they're doing the same thing, learning all the same mistakes over again, going through the same process. And we're trying to you know, make sure that the lessons from one group carry back over to the, the next group that comes through, through our podcast programming at Investor Connect. And that, I met a whole bunch of investors through that program as well. For sure. Yeah. I mean, sounds like a, a lot of work has happened over there. So over the years, it's, it's grown and grown and not stopped growing. Um, uh, something also that I'd love to hear from you is did you ever think of like becoming a VC and just having, you know, these angel and, and these high net worth individuals just fund you and you would take their money instead? Or do you feel like it's better just to have a network and let those guys take care of their own angel investments like that or get into startups through that path? Right. Well, I looked at the VC model and you have to go raise a fund, deploy it. And if you have good returns, go raise another fund, deploy it. If you have good returns and you're, you're in this constant cycle of raising and deploying and you, you, it works until you don't have good returns. And, you know, that sometimes it just happens. And uh, then, then it's going to be tough to, to carry on from there. And so I wanted to avoid that cycle. And so I didn't get involved in actual the actual fund or whatever, but saw that there was this next level of activity going on where people have to connect, they have to get their docs ready, they have to make investments, they have to balance portfolios. There's all kinds of things that need to go on. And that just never seemed to go out of fashion. It just uh, never was part of that uh, fundraising cycle that people go through. And so decided to be a part of that side of it because it had a lot more longevity uh, in, you know, I've had the same company pretty much since 2009. It's grown, changed, matured, and done a lot more, but uh, we've never actually had a fund or what have you to go through. And we didn't go the uh-huh. broker route either because a lot of angels and VCs don't allow brokers to be in the deal. So didn't want to lose that part of the network. And so just went the another way where we just charge retainer models for people that need help. And uh, we, like I say, we call it funding as a service because there's that much work that needs to be done that people uh, go come to us to help solve. Yeah, no, I mean, there is a lot of work and one person writing all these checks is, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds easy, right? Just write a check and give it to the, the founder. But I think there's definitely more, you know, in terms of before you write a check, in terms of diligence and and, and, and kind of just understanding legal processes and, and um, uh, every, everything that, that does come with it. You know, as, a, as an angel investor, what do you say is difficult about 
bit, right? Since like kind of the opposite view or someone who's not an angel investor or not a investor in startups yet would probably say that it's not difficult writing um, or, you know, funding companies out of your own pocket. What do you, what do you find uh, challenging about, you know, either building 10 capital network or what did you find challenging and what was, you know, the reward that you guys, or what is the thing that you guys are trying to really achieve? Well, you know, the startup world is just a startup. It's just hard, you know, to run a startup. And that's what we spend every day is helping startups uh, find traction, get a growth story, because that's what investors look for. They want to see something in motion. And they're looking at sales team, product and fundraise at the core four things that they want that demonstrate that company's really going forward. Some stars want to predict the future all day long, saying it's going to be great, it's going to be great, but they never actually sell anything. And so investors have learned to pick out the ones that are actively doing it, not just uh, (laughs) predicting it or forecasting it, which you see a lot of. And so it's just a hard world to live in in the startup space because you have to build everything. You have to generate momentum. You have to make customers happy. You have to hire employees, all, all the usual things that come with the business. And so that's what we deal with every day is helping people tell their growth story. And uh, and they, they have to have a growth story as well. And this is where it really gets hard. People come in with passion and interest and so forth. But at some point, you have to make the business work. And not everybody makes that. So that's what we spend our day trying as well. And you know, for investors, it's, it's really about you know, it can be hard to pick the winners out. I look back and uh, it's you almost never pick out the full set of winners of a cohort. You pick out one or two and then there's, uh, you know, two or three you thought would be great that didn't go anywhere. And then there's two or three you never would have thought that would have worked and it did. And uh, so you have to get into diversification. You have to get into at least 10 investments to make, you know, get the hits that you you really need to have to carry it forward. So it's uh, and there's just a lot of deal flow out there, especially in today's market. The the signal to noise ratio is very low because there's so many deals looking for funding and doing all kinds of cool things. But you know which ones are going to be really successful? Investors just have a lot of lot of uh, combing through to do to find the the, the ones that are going to be uh, hitting their criteria. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one mm-hmm. other aspect of your career that we could jump into really briefly is you know I read you were a part-time professor at UT Austin. Um, can you describe your experience, you know, working with students um, sure. in that capacity? Sure. So I, I worked with a professor at the University of Texas. They were in the engineering department and we were trying to give students some uh, pr- real practicum on getting their startup ready before they left the university. And so we would take a, usually a graduate student in the engineering department. We had one for mechanical, one for bio, one for computer science, and one for other. And we would then put around each one of them, they, they had one technology, and the graduate student would take care of the technical side of it. And then we recruit a business school student to do the business side and a law school student to do the legal side. Wow. And I taught the commercial side of it, and I had a, a cohort lawyer that would teach the actual uh, patent side of it is what they were doing. And in one semester, we were doing market research to figure out, okay, what's the product we're going to take to market? Let's build a one-page data sheet with the specifications, what it can do. Because in the early days, we have a piece of technology, you have a lot of choices. And you have to go through and analyze the market, and then you have to go test it and so forth. And my coaching was build a data sheet as if the product existed today, put a price on it, and then go out and see if you can sell it. 
you know, see if you can get an order for it. If you can, well, then you, you don't actually take the order, but you now know that there's, there's market interest. Typically what you do get though is uh, lots of feedback. I don't, that, that price is too high, too low, that that's the wrong specification. It needs to do this other thing. Uh, the name doesn't make any sense to me. And so you, you start to morph that into something that is an actual sellable product. And then for the legal side, you put together the claims for a provisional patent and you start writing up what is unique and novel about this and start searching to see if it's infringing any other patents. And then the, uh, the business school student would come up with the one page exact summary. Let's write up yeah, uh, sure. I've seen those the problem before. solution and so forth to write, write it. And we're, we're all coordinating on the same application and same process. And, and you, what you end up getting is for three hours of course credit, you would get basically uh, some good market research about uh, an application of your technology, because that's what many students were wanting to do is someone to go work in the big corporate world, but more and more students wanted to start their own business. And they yeah. wanted to license out technology that they were working on as a graduate student because they knew it very well. They knew it had promise. It was in a growing area. And so we were fostering that. We would run that every spring. And then in the summer, they would go to a local accelerator to get a little bit more maturing, a little bit more feedback. And then they'd go start their own business. And it had about 50% of them actually go start businesses at the end of the day. And some people took the class just because they wanted to see what that was like. And it was a good experience, but you know, it really wasn't their career choice. And so not everybody was going to take a technology forward. And some technologies really didn't have enough legs. When you start talking to the market, you start to realize what is valuable to them and what is not. And not every technology at the university is going to be valuable. No, yeah, absolutely. I think that's just so cool how uh, you brought a student from every different discipline to, to get a business off the off the ground. I, I mean, I I didn't. I went to UC Riverside in Southern California, and I never. I, I didn't get a I didn't get a business degree or a, you know um, what do you call it science degree. So I didn't know how all this stuff worked. Um, and every university does it differently, of course. But that's so awesome that you know University of Texas does that. Uh, one thing that I'm wondering, or I mean, just want to pose a question to you is. Do you think that entrepreneurship is born or is it made? I think it's made. I think you can learn entrepreneurship. I think you learn the skills. I think the uh, conditions you're in, you know, will encourage you to go one path or another. If uh, you're in a place where you're in a big company and uh, the rules are to, you know, stay stay within the, the boundaries of what they're doing, well, then you're going to do that. But if you're in a startup world where the rules say really well, you be creative and innovative and so forth, well, then then you you'll you'll start to that side will come out more because we're, we're fostering that side of the equation. But in general, I think people can learn entrepreneurship. It's just a matter of being in a place where you're really incentivized to do so. For sure. And, and um, when you say you're, you know, in terms of being in a place that you're super incentivized to do that, what do you mean by that? Is that going to, you know, a different, I mean, is that, does that mean working around other people who are doing the same thing or does that mean, what does that mean? Well, in large companies, you don't see much entrepreneurship because um, they don't pay for that. They pay you to sell the product that we're, we have on the desk now. We're not paying you to go build a new one. So why would anybody go build a new one? If you're a, in a startup and you only have one product and you only make uh, payroll if you sell it, well, then you're much more 
incentivized to be creative and build more products and change the product and make it fit the user and uh, be more proactive about innovating in the uh, space because you're, you're incentivized for that. And so that's the big difference I saw. I worked in the big company for 24 years and, and it's saying, you know, I started when it was very small and so it was very innovative, but as it got larger, I found uh, innovation was actually uh, disincentivized because it took away from the core products that were making most of the revenue and people, and it just became very hard to be innovative in that uh, situation. So one, one of the reasons I left was it seemed like they just want to sell what they already have for the next 20 years. I, I wanted to go out and solve new problems and take on new technologies and so forth. So stepped out and uh, got, got back to the startup world where I, I felt I, I fit better. You know, that's that's a common theme around the world right now. I know that a lot of people left their jobs uh, last year and just out of choice primarily. Um, uh, and I think the world the economy we have is just kind of catering towards flexibility um, in some ways and giving people kind of more options in terms of making money. Uh, uh, you know, I think that's that's been, it's been, you know, we've had such a great discussion here. Something a couple more things that we can discuss kind of are along the are along the lines are of, uh, I mean, what do you think gets an entrepreneur to, to be motivated when things are looking so negative, right? Like when the business is failing, for example, or, you know, they couldn't sign what they couldn't sign exactly. They couldn't get the, re- the amount of revenue they, they imagined by the deadline and they're thinking of giving up. What do you think gets people that you've worked with to, keep it keep going and keep keep on building the business when science point to no sure you know it always takes longer than we think to get to where we're going and uh, it's the why that carries you through why are you doing this uh, project why are we solving that problem and i found that with angel groups you know some angel groups it's the why is we're just here to make money well, they'll come in and just fire off three or four checks and they'll be done with it. And then with the Baylor group, for example, the why was student uh, education and job placement. We're helping them out. And that's the number one reason why people join that group. And so uh, the turnover rate was very low in that group because they stayed for many years. It wasn't just about firing off three or four checks. It was about helping students. And every semester was another round of students coming in. So it, uh, it continued. And same thing with entrepreneurship. You have to ask, why are we starting this? And if it's just to make a, uh, a dollar, or just make a product, you know, yeah. you'll, that's not a very strong why it won't last very long, but if it's uh, deeper and uh, bigger than that, well, then it's something that will carry you through. So think, think hard about the why behind your business. Why are we doing this? And make sure that's your passion. And that, that helps a lot to carry it through because there are ups and downs and uh, long gaps from one to the next success stories in some cases that you have to go through because it just takes time to build startups. It just takes time for the markets to mature and all the, all the plans to align for it comes to fruition. But it's, um, you know, that's what drives the world for sure. Well, one more thing to get a little bit deeper into that um, whole discussion is, you know, say that I'm a founder of, you know, brand new robotics company or whatever, but I'm not good at, you know, pitching and, inve- well, I, I would say I could be good at, I know that I could be, but let's just say this wasn't me. I'm not good at raising money, but I'm really good at building technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you've probably seen this before where somebody can build good technology, but maybe they're not good at the business side. What do you say, like when somebody has the skills in one department, but 
not exactly in another department. Um, do you, do you tell that? Would you think that good advice would be just find somebody else who can do that for you or learn it on your own and, and get good at it? Like what is, what is, what are some things that, you know, you and your peers would, would say in a situation such as that one? Well, every, every team, no matter what stage you're in, startup or otherwise, the team needs to be complete. Someone in the very early stage, someone's building it and someone's selling it. Raising funding is part of selling it. So if you're starting a company and you're good on the technical side, you want to build a product, well, then put yourself on the technical side, but then hire the complementary person that's going to be on the sell side. No fair, we're all going to build it and nobody's going to sell it because that's not a formula for success. And fundraising is part of the selling it side. And so you want to partner with somebody or get a co-founder that will do the other side of it. You can learn how to pitch. You, you, even if you're technical, you can learn how to present and pitch. And there are some investors where you really want the CTO presenting because it's a tactical group and it all goes to the technical aspect is how they'll make a decision. Uh, that's not always the case, but in, I've seen a few in that case that it makes that sense. But the idea is, you know, build a team that's complete and make sure you're complementing yourself and not just augmenting yourself with the team because, and as you grow, then that, that uh, balance just gets to be a little bit more uh, complete with people with uh, marketing skills and people with uh, finance skills. And you start to add those uh, elements into it because they're, they're big enough to work on it. But the startup phase, you know, you're either building it or you're selling it. Which one are you hire, hire for the other position? That's a great point. Forward. That's a really good point. I mean, um, no, I mean, that's, that's seriously a really good point. I think that visualizing it, it's, it's, you, you know, everyone's different, you know, they can, maybe do it all by themselves, but I think, you know, augment, I mean, giving the responsibilities uh, to different people and, and, and uh, all that makes life easier and ups the rate for success for sure. Uh, Hall, just a couple, last couple questions here. We always ask our guests are, um, uh, well, the first one is if you were to define or explain your, your own startup mindset to someone, what would you say, it is. And by this, I mean, you know, just your approach to building what you've built and helping people build uh, brand new technologies. Great. Well, I look at the uh, technology roadmaps and see where the technology is going, what's coming up, where are we with it? Are we at the beginning? Are we at the middle or is it maturing? And I try to pick out next generation technologies and where in business models to follow that trajectory, what uh, you know, we have a whole new set of business models today than we did 10 years ago because technology enabled that the market got more sophisticated in what they wanted as well. And so look at the roadmaps and, and plot where you are on those roadmaps for technology and business models. And then look at the spaces out there that you find interesting to work in. Is it healthcare? Is it automotive, you know, whatever space it might be. You see a lot of people going into climate change and alternative energy sources and carbon sequestration today. But the idea to pick the space and then start looking at uh, how do you apply those technology roadmaps to the space today? And you pick out the white spaces. You don't go and just do what everyone else is doing. You go pick the spots that people aren't doing or aren't doing yet. And you start to build out uh, with a little bit of thought in the big picture, as well as in the, the current picture, the technology roadmaps give you the big picture. And then when you go look at the white spaces on the market, where are companies, where are they not? You start yeah. to pick out how you, you can be positioned in there. 
No, I love that answer. I mean, it's super detailed and, and actually really helpful. <laughs> um, uh, next one we have here is, you know, what advice would you give to Hall uh, when you were 20 years old um, in terms of, you know, career, in terms of, uh, you know, success in business? Oh, let's see. I think I would tell myself that, you know, it's um, the things you do every day are the ones that are going to matter. The things you do every month will actually come out to be less successful. And the things you do once a year will be absolutely not, nowhere to be found. So things that turn into daily activities are the ones that turn out to be successful projects. And just about anything else that wasn't a daily activity didn't turn out to be a success or much of anything at that point. So it just comes down to focus and consistency because over time you can build anything and it just takes those two elements to get there. So you can do anything that you want. You just have to put in the daily effort to, to go do it. There's only so many hours in the days in that you can't put everything in. You have to pick and choose. And so prioritization yeah, yeah. <laughs> becomes a key, key aspect as well. But it's, you know, you can you know, climb the tallest mountain if you work on it every day and you actually uh, take the focus time to, to go do it. And that's the challenge because there's so many distractions in today's world, especially with the mobile and the web and the social media and other things going on that you, you have to pick and choose very carefully what you want to do and then stick with it if you're going to get there. Yeah, I, I think, you know, me as a millennial, it's, it doesn't even seem like a conscious choice, uh, you know, with the mobile. I mean, you know, with technology, it, it seems like it's, uh, did I even think about, you know, using my phone this way or did I even think about this hour of the day that way? So, yeah, being deliberate and uh, uh, organized with the roadmap, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, roadmap for success for sure. Last thing, Paul, is how can our audience uh, or, you know, friends of ours or angels, um, you know, contribute to the work at the Texas Entrepreneurial Network or um, people you know and, and things like that? Sure. You know, come to our website, 10capital.group, and you can check out the education resources there. You can check out the events we have. We have 15 events a month. Love to have you guys come out to the events and meet each other and share your information, learn learn from uh, the, the groups that we have there and the events that we have as well. And then we have a podcast program, Investor Connect. Love to have investors come out and uh, give an interview, listen to an interview that's there and learn from the community that we built there as well. So on our websites and they're, they're separate websites with the podcast, we had to put all the, that content on a separate site, but the branding's the same, but 10capital.group and investorconnect.org is the place where you can come and you can engage with other like-minded people in your community. For sure. Do you have to be in Texas to do this or you could be Anywhere. anywhere in the U.S., anywhere. anywhere in the world can do this, although we really focus on the U.S. at this point. Yeah, uh, we are looking at going abroad with it. We do. We have worked with Europe, Middle East, Africa uh, and Australia and other places, but mostly it's, it's U.S. based right now. Well, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a great opportunity there. Uh, Hall T. Martin, um, can't say enough about the wisdom and, and the, the information you gave us out today. And I uh, just want to say thank you again. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man.